Hello and welcome to the After Jet podcast, featuring stories from the Jet alumni community. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And also, if you've never been on the Jet program before, welcome. On this episode, my guests and I get to talking and analyzing the marketing and public relations profession, getting the 101 on an industry that ironically can suffer from a negative public image. We'll touch upon the distinction between promotion, propaganda, and outright misinformation, and also have some fun discussing that most precious of creatures, social media influences. And in one is becoming a usual apology on this podcast, there will be some background noise throughout the episode, so sorry, thank you very much for your patience. I will see you on the other side. So I'm Alex Varney. I was a jet in Saga Prefecture from 2011 to 2014. I was a CIR at Saga City Hall. I was, I believe, the maybe the 17th CIR that we had. Wow. I was the first one to stay for three years. Right. Um, and I'm not sure if anybody stayed longer since. But I'm originally from New York. I was born in the city. I grew up in the suburbs. I went to school at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. I did jet after college, currently work at a marketing and PR firm called Did It. How do you know that you're the 17th CIR in your town? That's very specific. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's 17th. You know, it's funny. At one point when I was still there, my, you know, again, all jets will be familiar with the fact that every situation is different, mm-hmm. right? And that goes the same for CIRs as for ALTs. But my office thankfully had had a lot of experience with previous CIRs. So when I showed up, they sort of knew what to do with me. There was set work to do, but I'm pretty sure they just, they had it in an Excel doc somewhere and I could see <laughs> who was number one, who was number two. Obviously I was in touch with my predecessor. I'd heard about my predecessor's predecessor and their predecessor's predecessor's predecessor. But yeah. it was, it was interesting that nobody had stayed for longer than one or two years. So yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, I just love the aspect about Japan. Well, I love and, and exasperated by the fact that Japan so advanced in so many ways, robotics, uh, electronic toilets, and yet so still stuck in the past in other ways, like still using blackboards and what fax machines and spreadsheets. Right. And I think if you go to convenience stores, you can still find kind of odd sized cassette player cassette tapes. I know. Um, Now, I would always see that and sort of wonder who's buying these. It would be like seeing floppy disks at a a big box store or something. It's almost like a haven for hipsters. I think my city wanted CIRs from New York. And Mm -hmm. the reason was that so Saga, it's a smaller prefecture in Kyushu, but it's famous for, among other things, they have a hot air balloon festival every year uh, oh, that nice. draws about 100 balloon teams from around the country and around the world. And I think they get close to a million total attendees across the, across the, uh, the week of the event. But anyway, Saga City is sister cities with a city in, in New York State called Glens Falls. And part of the CIR's job is to help facilitate the student exchange programs that happen every year to receive visiting dignitaries from from Glens Falls in in New York and then to accompany city officials from the city uh, from Saga when they went to New York. So they had, I think, probably at some point requested that every CIR be from New York or connected to New York. So Mm -hmm. both of my predecessors who I knew knew of were from New York, and I assume that's why they, they put me there because I was from New York. 
I was pretty sure that I I was going to go for probably minimum two years. I, I wasn't really sure before I went, but after being there, I'm glad I didn't only stay for a year because the timing of when you have to recontract and you know, mm-hmm. you sort of have to decide before you've even really been there for too long. So mm-hmm. I was pretty certain that I wanted to stay for minimum two years, but I was pretty sure I wasn't going to stay for the full five. Yeah. But I also realized that I'm moving to a new part of the world. I'm going to be meeting new people. Who knows what can happen? So yeah, I was pretty set on at least two years. So the first time I recontracted was really no problem. The second time I recontracted, it was sort of like things were going well. Like I said, my office had experience with CIRs before. So I got to do quite a wide variety of work that I really enjoyed. I got to translate documents, uh, interpret for city officials. You know, I taught English classes Mm. to adults, to kids. I visited some historic residents of a famous artist from Saga that was turned into a little community center. And I Mm -hmm. taught a really rewarding English class there. I got to go out and give presentations in the community helped people file their taxes. I helped a goodwill ambassador from Switzerland navigate around the prefecture in Japan. It's really rewarding. It's funny, a couple of these stories I've actually shared, we've done some jet storytelling events. So a couple of these stories may be floating out there Mm -hmm. for people to find. I was pretty fulfilled. So I, I kind of didn't feel the need to come back after my second year. I did have some issues with my supervisor that mm-hmm. started making it less enjoyable, uh, where I still sort of enjoyed the work I was doing, mm-hmm. but not so much some of the office dynamics. So, you know, I was also cognizant of the fact that I didn't view Jet as kind of a final destination. I know a lot of people go to Japan, they do mm-hmm. Jet, and then they just kind of stay forever. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that's absolutely the right move. You know, Mm -hmm. they move there, they really find that they enjoy either teaching or they get involved in their community and a different type of business. They have a relationship and they settle down. And I knew a lot of people who did that, but I felt very strongly that I I wanted to come back to the States. And I felt that, you know, I'm from New York. I wanted to be back in New York. I wanted to have kind of that office experience in New York and hopefully pivot to something else. Yeah. There's a jet conference, the after jet conference that happens in probably February in in Yokohama every year, at least it did when I was there. Mm -hmm. And I went to that and I sort of had an open mind about what career opportunities there were to remain in Japan. But I just didn't really feel too strongly about staying and, you know, moving to Tokyo and getting a more of a corporate job or moving to Fukuoka. I was pretty certain that I would finish after three. And and I'm happy with that decision in hindsight. When I came back to New York in 2014, it took me about a year before I got the job I currently have now. And one of the things I did was I kind of plugged into the Jet Alumni Association in New York, as we lovingly call Jitani. Mm-hmm. And it's been really valuable and it's been a source of social interaction, friendships, professional experience. It's really been a massive part of my sort of post-jet social life. And I'm lucky that New York has such an active chapter, but I think it's really important for people to reconnect with jets when they go back home. Some people go on the jet program and have a great time and love Japan and come back and love Japan forever. Mm-hmm. Some people go to jet and don't have a great time and come back kind of frustrated. But Mm. I feel like whatever your experience, it can be the basis for connecting with other people who did the program. For me, I found that when I came back from Japan, 
it was really valuable for me to to connect with people who got it, quote unquote, got it. Mm. And if anybody, you know, whether you're a recent returnee or you've been back for a while, you'll be familiar with you finally get back and you're with your friends and they're like, so did you like eat chicken teriyaki all the time? <laughs> and it's just like, oh, shut up. You know, yeah. I don't want to talk to you about this. What did yeah. you eat? Did you eat sushi all the time? Oh my God, do you wear you do you wear kimono every day? I'm exaggerating. I think a lot of those questions are well. Are you really but... though? Because I'm pretty sure that it was like like an accurate representation of yeah, some of the Maybe a little bit of an exaggeration. But yeah. <laughs> no, but look, I think the point is that it's really valuable when you come back from something and you're going through the process of reverse culture shock or whatever, mm. and you know, maybe you don't have a job, maybe you broke up with a serious partner mm. that you had, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, you just left a big friend group. So for me, it was really valuable to plug myself into that community. And thankfully, we have a really strong community in New York. We do career fairs, we do a lot of social events, we have a lot of events that deepen the connection with Japan as a country, you know, Japanese Americans, international organizations. I've gotten very involved in the JET Alumni Association. And I think whether you want to get involved just as a participant at events, whether you want to get involved in a, like a leadership capacity, I really encourage people to at least get themselves signed up for the newsletter for whatever their local chapter is, just as a way of staying connected. Awesome. Great pitch. Great marketing pitch. <laughs> You talked about going to the AfterJet conference, uh, which, of course, it's, I think it's still going on in Yokohama. Well, I do, I do know the AfterJet conference is still happening. I uh, hope so. It was great. If I could just jump in, I, I found it really valuable. They talk a lot of about when you come on Jet about dealing with culture shock and this mm. adjustment. But I think a lot of people don't understand that the same process happens in reverse to some degree when you yeah. go back home, wherever yeah. that's where, wherever home is. And I think I went through culture shock pretty severely about twice when I was on jet, which I was happy to talk about with people because, again, it's there's definitely, I think, a stigma where you want to talk about, hey, everybody's struggles to some extent. I'm wondering whether people who studied Japanese uh, in university, uh, which would, of course, come with courses about the culture, about thinking, and I suppose this aspect of sociology, and I'm wondering whether any of that actually properly equipped the graduates when they eventually come to Japan on jet, whether that was helpful or, in fact, gave the wrong impression. I felt like I was probably just about as prepared as I could be. I had started studying Japanese when I was in high school with a, with a woman who lived in my town because I was interested in language. Um, when I was at the University of Michigan, I, I majored in Japanese. I studied Japanese all four years. Mm -hmm. took intensive classes. Um, I had an internship in Tokyo one summer. Lots of Japanese friends was trying to, it was, was kind of as involved as I thought I could be. And yet, yeah, when I arrived in Japan, in Tokyo for Tokyo orientation, uh, I think I just had a very overwhelming sense of being an imposter. So, you know, if you've heard right. of the imposter syndrome yeah. or whatever it's called, imposter disorder, imposter syndrome. Imposter um, syndrome, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think there's a combination of maybe I had a little bit of food poisoning before I left America. Oh. You know, maybe it was nerves a little bit. But I, I just recall being at the, the orientation and seeing all the other CIRs and just feeling totally out of my depth. And it just seemed that everybody had better Japanese than me. Everybody knew the customs better. And everybody was already sort of like a professional diplomat. But I will say that I think that was a really important process. I think the first thing that I did when I landed in Saga was I puked at the airport. 
And (laughs) I felt really bad because I was making everybody late and I was about to be introduced. And I had another story, which I guess I can briefly tell uh, when I was in Tokyo. So again, like I had lived in Tokyo before. I felt like I knew the city pretty well. So at Tokyo Orientation, you know, I was kind of connecting with people who I shared my room with and and I was sort of like, hey, let's, like go, let's go out. I know a Kaiten Zushi place. Nihongo Dekimasio, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we had like a, a meal at a restaurant with all of the, the other Saga jets. And so there were a bunch of people from Saga at the Kensho who had come. Mm. And I just, I had total indigestion. Again, I don't know if it was probably nerves. But basically, I ended up puking at the restaurant and kind of the manager came and like yelled at me in front of my table and in front of everybody. And so I was mortified. And then the next morning at like 4 a.m., they wake you up, they send you on the flight to, you know, your prefecture. And we landed and then I puked at the airport and then they took (laughs) us, they took us to the, you know, the Kensho for the ceremony and everybody's like, oh, you're the CIR. So I was sitting in the front and and they (laughs) took me around, they introduced me to everybody and they were like, oh, we're going to go get Okonomiyaki. Do you want that? Oh, no. And again, the only reason why I say that is because I felt like I was at a really low point, but it Mm -hmm. meant that I only had up to go it was a tough experience but i wouldn't trade it for anything yeah because it gave me a really good perspective moving forward through future frustrations even to the current day where i got to kind of develop my own coping mechanisms set up my own overlapping safety nets so that Mm. i would never actually be in free fall if i'm starting to feel frustrated i can do this i can talk to these people and i definitely leaned on friends and family And then it got better. And fast forward my first year to November, a short two months after I got there, three months after I got there, to the first CIR mid-years conference. And I'm meeting a lot of CIRs who are miserable. They're Mm. in offices that don't know what to do with them. Mm. And yeah, there's some of these superior standout CIRs. But by that point, I felt pretty good about how I was doing. And I felt like I have a lot of really good work that I'm doing and I'm contributing and I'm out in the community and I'm helping facilitate the jet community in Saga, but Mm. I'm also going out and giving presentations on American culture and doing cooking classes and being involved with the mayor and other projects. So I think a certain amount of imposter syndrome is healthy because it makes you you try harder. it, It makes you try harder. It makes you humble about your skills, your abilities. There's always room for improvement. I loved sharing this story when I was in Saga because a lot of Jets have this tendency to put the CIRs on a pedestal and assume that, oh, you speak Japanese and, oh, you you know the culture, you're going to have no problems. CIRs have problems too. I mean, I felt like there was probably a lot more support for ALTs than for CIRs. And I felt that by saying that to people, it was sort of like, wow, like if even Alex is having problems, everybody has problems. That's okay. (laughs) People deal with culture shock differently. I mean, I had friends who got sent to the middle of nowhere in Saga with no Japanese and they killed it. And I was like, you're awesome. Good for you. It, It happens to everybody. I would make the analogy that you take a Japanese person from the middle of nowhere and you drop them in, you know, Shinjuku station in Tokyo, they're going to be totally out of their element. They speak Mm. the language, they know the culture, but the system's new. And so if you recognize that, you just need to move forward. You don't need to get hung up on anything. And I think that was sort of a formative experience. The more of those negative experiences you collect, the better perspective Mm. you have. Instead of panicking, you sort of say, this isn't that bad. I've dealt with worse before. 
Mm. Here's my plan. Here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to move forward. That's a really good advice. And I think those are soft skills that helps a lot in your career. Failure, it's a cliche, but failure is a really good teacher. And also how you deal with failure is another uh, test of your character. Like I, I was an, an ALT, but I'm actually quite an introvert. I have quite a lot of introverted qualities. So right. putting me is a challenge. So it makes me, me kind of wonder why I went to jail <laughs> on the first place, whether I actually knew what it meant. Maybe I, would, I knew intellectually what it meant, but it didn't really hit me until I was put in front of the class in junior high school, a whole bunch of really bored teenagers, not being able to really speak the language that well. And then having to come up with a way to try and engage uh, kids in a language that they have no interest, well, for a lot of them, that no interest in, in learning. Right. And I, I have a very low threshold for dealing with public embarrassment. Nice. Eventually, you know, you just learn basically to grow thick skin, get out of your comfort zone, then being able to think under stress, under pressure, like, okay, here's my mission. I'm supposed to do this. How do I go about achieving this particular goal or objective in this class. Like, for example, I have to teach them about this particular grammar point. Now, how do I get them interested? Oh, you know, someone said to to make into a game. And so that was what I focused on and turning my classes into, you know, edutainment kind of thing, uh, gamification of lessons. That formed like an outlet for my creativity. I, I remember one of the last classes I did, Usually after the exams, you know, when they, they have to do all these uh, entrance exams, which determines which uh, senior high school they would get admission to. Their future, yeah. They've, yeah, essentially. Um, so but after those exams are over, and there's usually only a few weeks left into to the end of the term. So there's no, like, real lessons that are set. A lot of times it's just sort of babysitting duties for the, the JTEs normally. Uh, or, you know, the really more industrious ones would just try and get them started in the next, um, like, for their, for their, prepping them for their senior high school, whatever. But my, my JTEs, like, they were all fantastic. I loved working with my JTEs. They were really funny, quite open-minded. One of them in particular, um, he just allowed me to do whatever I wanted in the class. So for his class... I decided to have it a little bit of fun. And of course, one, one way to get kids involved is to introduce an element of competition in it. And right. I told the classes, okay, now get into your normal groups. So everyone gets into their groups. And I said, all right, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Now, each group, you're all now representing your own movie production company. So hmm. give yourself a name, pick a name. Now, pick someone who will uh, write the plot line, like your script writer. It has to be English, but uh, concerning your level, if you can only find it in Japanese, that's fine. You know, this is, this is not an assessment. This is just for fun. Uh, pick someone to do the artwork. So that way, you know, someone, if they happen to have someone who's really bad in English or didn't like doing English, then they at least have a role to play in that group. And everyone loves drawing. All kids love drawing, regardless of their skill level. And then uh, pick someone who is going to be your marketing person. They have to set up and present and say it in English in front of the whole class. 
And hmm. there was a few other roles that I, I, I set out, which I can't remember exactly. Everyone's going to present it, and then we'll come to the uh, Oscars award kind of thing. So the whole class will vote on who they think should win. I started crafting all these cards, you know, like little Oscar statues from gold paper, and like make these little cards. So like best, uh, best movie, best writing, best poster, that sort of stuff. We got like the kids to do all this, and everyone voted on for each of these category awards. And even the kids who loudly complain about like, oh god, not an English lesson, I don't like English. When their team won for one of the awards, they were the loudest, who just went, yes, yes, in your face kind of thing. That was really fun. One just final point on kind of the jet thing before I can tie it to what I do now. But I felt that a lot of times, here I am, I'm fresh out of school, I'm living in another country, and people are coming to my office sort of requesting that I come give a presentation to them about something. Mm-hmm. And so I really respected the trust and the value that people were vesting in me before I really had even demonstrated anything, right? I'm, you know, I'm new in the country, I'm new in the position, and somebody wants me to come give a talk to their 100-member community group or something. Mm. And lesson that I learned really quickly was that I, I really respected the position that I was in as a JET. Mm-hmm. And I, I always felt like I was on call, right? So I was on call 24-7. And yeah. as a kind of a grassroots ambassador... I felt that I am always presenting something that, that people are seeing, right? So if I'm a well-dressed, well-spoken guy who mm-hmm. stands in line and speaks Japanese with people at the supermarket, people see that. And even if it's subconscious, they, they'll say, oh, wow, like, I didn't know that foreigners could, could speak Japanese or could kind of follow the cultural norms. Yeah. So when people would come request that I gave a presentation on something, I really respected it and I took it seriously. Nobody in America is lining up to hear me give a presentation on something as a fresh out of school 22-year-old. But I think the lesson that I learned there was just to take every opportunity really seriously and to respect the chances that you're given, but also to sort of always be professional. To tie it back to sort of what I do now, so I finished up JET, came back to the States, was trying to reconnect with friends and family, but also Mm -hmm. think about what what I wanted to do next. For me, working in Japan, being on JET, really prepared me to go work for a Japanese company. I was used to the Japanese work environment. I spoke Japanese. I had that kind of corporate experience, but I didn't really feel too strongly about doing that. I connected with a bunch of the Japanese recruiters in New York. I went on a bunch of interviews and... And while it was very fulfilling to be able to go into a office and interview in Japanese and sort of feel like I was successful in getting a couple job offers, mm-hmm. I, I realized it really wasn't what I was looking to do. So I connected with a woman who had been in Japan. She had worked at a, at a PR agency in Japan. And somebody suggested, and again, it's really important to just build your network. This was like a connection of a connection of a connection. And somebody basically just said, oh, you should talk to this person. Just an informational interview, right? Mm-hmm. Let me talk to you about your experiences. She said, hey, we've looked at your resume. We think you may actually be a good fit. So went in, had a good interview, and I got hired by basically a boutique PR firm that did international PR for foreign companies that were looking to do U.S. market entry and also for startups. And they yeah. had a bunch of Japanese clients and they needed a Japanese speaker. So it was a good fit. You didn't have qualifications for PR. You weren't a communications major, for example. Right. So it seems like your cultural and language abilities seem to... Uh, override any, I was going to say shortcoming, but I don't mean that in an offensive way, sorry. Like no, in terms of the skills. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. The normal path to a PR firm is to study communications at school, get an internship with a firm or an agency, and then go work someplace in a junior capacity when you graduate. For me, I came on not as like an account coordinator or something, which is the starting position for a PR firm. It depends on the firm, but Mm. I was an account manager. One of the important other lessons that the AfterJet conference helped me with and that some of the events I went to in New York, the Jet alumni events, was basically how to position your experience as a Jet. And so while it's true that I had not studied communications, I didn't study journalism, I hadn't studied marketing, what I was really doing in Japan for three years was communicating, mm-hmm. right? I was taking a message, I was making it relevant for a different audience. I was learning about what the talking points were. I was doing a deep dive into the background, and then I was making it relevant for whatever the audience was. If that was translating, if it was interpreting, if it was preparing a brief for my boss so that when the sister city person comes, they know what to talk about. I was giving presentations. So I was was communicating, and I think I was able successfully to package that experience. I'm somebody who has dealt with projects. I've dealt with deadlines. I've dealt with being thrown new topics and new Mm. materials and having to, to learn about them and become conversant and knowledgeable and then be able to message around that. And the fact that I spoke Japanese and had that cultural understanding was a very big sell for them. But I think if I would just spoke Japanese but hadn't had my CIR experience, I probably wouldn't have been hired. So to your point about shortcomings, you know, yeah, it's it's true. You look at the requirements for a job and it may say seven years experience in such and such. My guess is that most of that, some things truly are yes or no red lines. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of things, it's how you communicate your experience. If somebody just tells me that they studied communications in school, that's one thing. But if they can explain to me how they've communicated and used communication strategies and skills, maybe in a different capacity, that shows me that they've demonstrated what I'm looking for, right? I mean, you can get a degree in something and never actually use it. But if you've demonstrated the skills and the capabilities, I think that's much more valuable. So in my case, I was thankfully able to do that. I was able to use the fact that I had that Japanese experience and the communications experience to get a foot in the door. And now that I've been at the company for five years, I now have the actual communications, marketing, PR experience that a lot of people would think I would have needed to even get into the company. Do you think that's a atypical uh, journey that you've had, like your experience of getting a foot in the door the way you got in? Do you think that's atypical? The company that I work for is a little atypical just in the way that it kind of came to be in their approach. And I like a lot of that. So just Mm. to give you a little bit of a background, so I work for a company called Didit, which is Mm. a marketing, integrated marketing firm. And they were really big in kind of search engine optimization and search engine marketing, really when those things started. um, And the head of the company was a a pioneer in those. But they, they built out their corporate capabilities by hiring people, but also by acquiring a variety of firms that had the staff, had the experience, and had the clients. The company that I was originally hired by was a boutique PR firm. And then they were then acquired by Did It, where I work now. I've been able to work with a lot of interesting people who themselves have different backgrounds. 
So I don't work at one of the standard big marketing or, or PR firms. And maybe at those places, you need more of a standard kind of skill set and you mm. know, pedigree. Again, I, I, I don't know for sure. I have friends who work at some of these companies. But my experience has shown really that if, if you can demonstrate the skills and capabilities that are necessary for a job mm. and you have the right culture fit, then I think a company will be inclined to to hire you, even if you maybe are, you know, one year shy on you need four to five years in blank or you have to have this. Culture fit. The soft skills are really important uh, in a company. Um, how you get along with the team and also like, if you're open to learning new skills as well and just getting getting things done. Um, Absolutely. Just essentially, yeah. I think a lot of people, especially those uh, who are just starting in a career, they kind of maybe have a trepidation or a little bit uh, worried that they don't have those skills. I think a lot of people assume that you need to be naturally extroverted person, you know, gregarious, that sort of stuff. But I think you and I talked about how these kind of things just develop. They, they can be developed. They can be learned. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that because I remember having a big chip on my shoulder when I came back from Japan and feeling like I had done this great thing and I had this great experience. I was a problem solver and I was flexible and I'd gone to the other side of the world and I'd done this really cool thing. And how come companies aren't appreciating that, right? Like Mm. either I have to go work for a Japanese company and basically just be the guy who speaks Japanese or like it doesn't count for anything. And I remember there were a bunch of jobs that I was finding and I don't know why this one thing sticks with me, but it was like financial modeling, which Mm. for whatever reason, that just seemed to be like, ooh, if I could do financial modeling, I could work at a hedge fund, I could work at a bank, I could be doing all these things. But like, Mm. oh man, I just don't have that skill. Mm. And somebody pointed out to me, they were like, Alex, nobody's born knowing financial modeling. Everybody who's doing the financial modeling that you think is such a big deal learned it at some point and they they had to learn it, right? Either they learned it in school or they learned it on the fly. But the more important thing is whether your sort of innate personality and attitudes, right? Like, are you somebody who has a growth mindset? Are Mm. you sort of feeling that you are stuck where you are now or do you have this attitude that I can... I can change. I can learn new things, right? Do you have an internal or an external locus of control? Do you think I have control over my situation or do you think things happen to me? I can't control anything. And it's true that, yeah, maybe things like being an introvert or an extrovert to some extent are innate. But at the end of the day, you can learn a lot of the things that you need to to get some of these jobs. Once I sort of rethought how I was approaching the job hunt, I was basically like, okay, I lived in Japan, I speak Japanese, that means I should talk to a Japanese headhunter and just let them say, oh, well, you speak Japanese, you can Mm. do the Japanese work environment, you should go work for a Japanese company. Mm. And once I sort of stepped back and said, wait a second, let me just repackage my skill set and my experiences, find something where maybe there's a Japan connection, but that's not the main thing, that might be more enjoyable. There was about a year between coming back from Japan and and getting the job at this PR marketing firm. Mm. And in that time, I was connecting with people. I was building out my LinkedIn, building out my network, reconnecting with other jets, seeing what they were doing. And that was all very valuable. Some job requirements, like I said, are you either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you can't do the job. But I think a lot of things are a little softer. Do you have have rapport with people? Do you you feel like you believe in the company's mission? I mean, if I was a hiring manager, I would find important. 
And when I have interviewed interns, the question that I always ask is, tell me about your problem solving process. Mm -hmm. And 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 what would you be expecting to hear from that? Well, there was a girl that we hired as an intern and then she was an intern and then she, she stayed on for a while. She was one example where basically she said, you know, first I have like a moment of panic, right, (laughs) when there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of step back and I think, okay, how severe is this? What do I need to do? Do I I have the resources I need? Do I need to make other people aware of the problem? Do I need to loop other people in? And that's exactly what I want to hear. I feel like companies don't hire you to solve the problems they already know. They hire you to solve the problems that may be coming in the future. The problems that I solve on a daily basis, there's no playbook for them. I mean, some, in some cases there is, mm-hmm. but in other cases it's, you know, how can you think? How can you integrate information? How can you think about what needs to happen immediately versus tomorrow versus who needs to know now, who needs to know tomorrow? Mm-hmm. That's all thought process. It's all problem solving process. Yeah. So I think that is a really important skill. You're talking about a job, so that's a nice segue into what you do uh, on a a more specific discussion. What do you actually sell? And am I just really grossly (laughs) simplifying what you do for a living? No, no, I mean, so so the first thing to note is that with marketing and, and PR, as with other, you know, some other industries, there's a difference between whether you sort of work at an agency or whether you work in-house. Mm. So imagine like Nike has lawyers who work for Nike, but occasionally mm. they will also hire an outside law firm to do work for them. So imagine that when I'm working for a company, I, I work at an agency, so I work with a bunch of different companies. I don't only work for one company. And the companies I work with very often have their own in-house marketing and public relations people. But for whatever reason, they want to work with an external partner. Mm. My title is I'm an account manager, which means that I basically handle and manage all of the work for the clients whose accounts I manage. In some cases, that means that it's a very small client and I do all the work for them. Mm. Other clients, I'm basically directing the efforts of a, of a team of subject matter experts and may or may not be also doing some of the your work or just managing it from kind of a, a bigger macro picture. What does that mean on a day-to-day basis? It means I am executing the campaigns that we have devised to help clients meet their needs. The, the, the good thing about my company, as I said, we're an integrated marketing and PR firm. So if you need something like SEO, search engine optimization, there are some companies which just specialize in that. You may want a company to help you with social media. You may want a PR firm. You may want a company to help you build your website. Uh, if you want to send out mail to advertise and coupon codes to people, you need yet another company for that. My company has all of those capabilities in-house. One of the big selling points is that we're sort of like a single point of contact. So depending on what marketing and PR plan you know you negotiate, mm-hmm. we'll be able to then say, okay, we have a team that we've put together to meet your needs and you'll have one contact person. In some cases, it's me. In some cases, it's a colleague. We're in touch. We have weekly check-ins, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly. We help optimize their website, right? We help Mm. run a social media campaign. We help uh, create a blog and newsletter. We help them rebuild their website. Uh, We help them handle sales on on Google with, with search ads. 
Mm. Um, so really, it, it, it depends on what the needs of the client are. But my job is to help pull all those various programs together and make sure that we're delivering what the client is expecting on the time frame that they're expecting it. And we're doing it in an effective way. Let's say we have 30 hours of work budgeted for a client. We want to be able to do all the work within that 30 hours. Some cases, like I said, I am the one who's actually writing the blogs and setting up the marketing automation logic yeah. so that you submit a form and, it, well, you live in Germany, so it goes to this person. But other times, I am, like I said, just coordinating the efforts of a team of people. So uh, we have one client that is a bigger client where you know they're spending a pretty significant amount on paid ads and Facebook and Google and YouTube. Uh, we're also developing videos for them. Um, and at the same time, we're trying to optimize their return on ad spend and kind of help them work through some of their other marketing strategies. So in that mm -hmm. situation, I'm kind of taking a bigger picture approach and I'm kind mm -hmm. of coordinating the efforts of a team of people. But then there's smaller clients, such as there's a, a small oncology firm that's developing a, a really promising drug that would fight a variety of cancers. And I'm the only person who works on that account, right? And we just do PR for them. So when they have a press release, I distribute it and I pitch it to media. My job is different every day, which is something I love about it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a long-winded answer, but <laughs> that's what I do. It can be quite stressful, I'd imagine. I, I think you're basically having to work on multiple projects at the same time during any given day. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's, that's one downside of this type of job is that I get interrupted a lot. But at the same time, yeah. there's problem solving. We have sort of a set playbook for some things, but a lot of things, it's like a bespoke approach. You know, I know a lot of, a lot of prospects, when they talk to a company, they sort of want to say, okay, I'm toothpaste and I'm launching in, in Michigan. And mm -hmm. how many toothpastes have you launched in Michigan? We want to see other examples. Yeah. And maybe you could find a company that has launched every successful toothpaste in Michigan in the country, mm -hmm. and that might be the perfect fit. But I think what we want to show is we maybe haven't done that exact thing, but we've yeah. done 20 other things which are very relevant and mean mm. that we will also be able to do this thing. Yeah. What's the most uh, – well – uh, if you're allowed to talk about it, well, what's the most interesting work or product you've had to either pitch, sell, or market, or promote? So that's a good question. I have been really lucky in that the clients that I work with, I've, I mean, they're all interesting, right? So I know mm. from a marketing a perspective... Very diplomatic way of putting things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so, you know, look... We had a client at one point that was like a diaper company, right? Mm -hmm. Like a for incontinence. Mm. And I didn't work on the client, but some of my colleagues would kind of joke about it. But at the end of the day, they have a product, they have a market, mm. they need to communicate that, right? Yeah. There's the marketing, which is how do we kind of make this sexy and how do we sell it and how do we find the people who need it and let them know it exists and yeah. sell them on it. And then there's the PR, which is just, this is a product, there's a need that's unmet, this mm -hmm. product is better than the other products, and here's why. You um, know what, I would have pitched, like, Acme Adult Diapers, you'll need it one day. <laughs> well, exactly. Come into this world needing it, and you go out of this world needing it too. <laughs> you know, the point is that 
I have never felt like ethically or morally compromised with any of the work I've done. And I've been lucky in that a lot of the clients and projects I've worked on have been really interesting. I mentioned at the beginning that one of the reasons why I was hired at the, the boutique firm that hired me was because of my Japanese ability. And they represent, and we still do, uh, a very large Japanese hospitality firm in Japan that has 100 locations across the country. And in, they have a few locations outside of Japan as well. Actually, it's funny because the first time I ever went to Japan with my dad, we stayed at one of their hotels. Mm. And so when I was interviewing for this job and they were telling me about, oh, we've got this client. I said, wait a second. I stayed at that hotel the first time I ever went to Japan. <laughs> and that's yeah. a fabulous, it's a fabulous client. You know, we get to announce when they have new hotel locations when they have a new brand of hotels, they have some really interesting locations. They've got like a, they've got a location that is like a hot spring that has coffee baths and tea baths and wow. ramen baths. Yeah, we just do PR for them. So for me, announcing that these places have opened or that they have such a unique pull is great. In some cases, I mean, I've even helped them manage the the naming of a, of a location right yeah. how does it translate into english what makes sense this is the mission statement in japanese how do we make this sound appropriate in english yeah and that's amazing to be part of that i think it's really fascinating mm. and it's it's enjoyable it's fun to fun to pitch stories they've got a hotel that actually has a life-size godzilla on the roof oh awesome and, and it's right in shinjuku i think it's right in kabukicho I and, know that hotel. It's hard yeah. to miss. It's hard to yeah. miss that Godzilla. Yeah. So we do PR. I've done PR for that, you know, and, and helped. Wow. We've pitched influencers and people to visit. And I remember there was one story that I found, and this is like a totally serendipitous, but it was basically there was a there's a place where you can find journalists who are looking. They're saying, hey, I'm writing this story. Let me know if you have any relevant information. And somebody was saying, okay, I'm writing a story called Hotels with Killer Views. Mm. Most of the time you think, okay, killer view, like you're at the top of a mountain or you're up, a, you know, like that hotel in, in Singapore or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Quite literally, this is a hotel that has some killer views, right? There's a couple <laughs> rooms that right out the window is like Godzilla's face. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to pitch that. We got that. I think it was like on a USA Today blog or something. Yeah. But... That was really great. Yeah. Um, there's another client that they're like a pharmaceutical industry organization. So they bring together U.S. and Japanese pharma companies. I'm interested in that industry, but I don't have any special knowledge. But a few months after joining the company, I was basically helping them plan monthly programs. Mm -hmm. So I helped plan a, a program on digital health. And I reached out, researched, connected with some CEOs and consultants who were putting together research on what are the trends in digital health in 2017 or 2018. That was so fulfilling. Mm. And again, it was like, I'm not an expert in any of these things, but I have the interest and I can kind of do the hard work of researching and then connecting mm. with people. That's just a couple examples. There's a, another company I work with. They make precision gears and components. They have some pieces that are on the... The Mars rover that's now sitting on the surface oh, wow. of Mars. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. So the first thing that struck me um, when you were describing these examples were, was that you mentioned researching. You had no idea in the beginning, so you had to do a lot of research. And I think that's probably that's, that's an important thing to for anyone listening to this to remember that 
it's not like you pull out all these ideas out of thin air. I mean, it really, it really depends. But just to kind of walk you through, like I've onboarded a new client. We connect with the client. Well, when they're a prospect, we connect with them. We pitch them on the services. We, we see what their needs are. We, we say how we think we can help them. Mm. But really, there's a lot of like deep dive kind of research that goes in, right? We want, if they have any information about their industry or their you know, service, why it's good, we want to know that. But we also, we do a lot of research ourselves. And I also think it's really important to just be a generally well-informed person. Mm. Um, when I joined the company, the woman who interviewed me, who was, again, I you know, I'd lived in Japan, worked at a Japanese PR firm. Um, you know, really, she gave me an incredible opportunity by hiring me. Mm. Um, but she, she made me take like a general knowledge test as part okay. of my interview. Right. I had to sit down and I had to talk about, I had to identify uh, who certain pop culture figures were. And I had to comment on what's this mean and what does that mean? And what is the significance of the Magna Carta? And, and the thinking there is, if you're going to be somebody who is communicating with the media and kind of trying to position a story mm. in the greater cultural zeitgeist, you know, media landscape, you need to know what's going on in the world. Mm. I mean, if I just come to you and I say, hey, I've got a product, let me tell you about it. This is what I want to say about it. It's so great. If you know that other products like this have run into regulatory problems or they do really well with kids, but that's bad. But, mm. you know, they're really expensive, but they're a good investment. That is really valuable background knowledge. And mm. yeah, you can do a lot of research and you should. But I think if you're the kind of person who is a thinking person and you're aware of what's going on in the world, you have a decent awareness of kind of what's happening in the culture and society and business and the law and the government. Mm. That awareness and background is really crucial uh, because it gives you sort of a perspective and a, and a baseline that you can then use to inform, well, I think we should do this because this is timely. Well, how do you know it's timely? Mm. Because a lot of people are talking about it. It's an up and coming industry. Well, how do you know that? Well, mm. I, re I read Wired magazine and they're talking about this is the next big thing in tech. You basically have to justify your uh, recommendations to the client because they, they want to know because it's, it's their investment. They're putting a lot of money. Uh, they're putting a budget to it. So they want to know where it's going. And you have to convince right. them why this is the right I mean, if you strategy. If you think, you know, why would a client hire a company to do something that they could do themselves? Mm. And maybe they don't have the time to do it. So then they just need to find the skill. Mm. And then it doesn't really matter just as long as somebody provides the skill. Mm. Okay. Well, what about they want to hire somebody because they have a perspective or they have experience or they, they, they're focused on a certain industry? Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense that you, you hire a PR firm that specializes in international companies. Well, they have that international perspective. That's valuable. But I think you want to show a client, like I said, that if you've done exactly what they're looking for before, you want to say, hey, we can do it again and we'll get you the same result. Mm. If you haven't done exactly the same thing, you want to say, we've done similar things. Here's how they're similar. Here's what happened in these other cases. And here's what we think can happen with you. Mm. Or you're bringing us an interesting problem that we haven't really handled before, but here's what we've done before. Here's what we've learned. Here's the yeah. results we had, and here's what we think we could try. And if we, if it doesn't work, we could try this. We can learn. That's a big part of, of all these client relationships is the idea is that the client shouldn't be paying you necessarily to get up to speed, right? Mm -hmm. You should be able to learn on your own time, but 
Yeah. There is a certain element of growth and learning that does happen with a client relationship that should be expected and encouraged. Yeah. You mentioned dealing with social influences and I know you're very diplomatic, but are they annoying? <laughs> so I, I got a couple of funny stories about influencers, which I have no problem sharing. Yeah. Um, we got contacted by a representative of, I think it was the, the bachelor, the bachelorette. Right. And they were interested in our, basically our premier hotel location in Japan. Mm. The one that I had visited when mm. I was, when I was younger and they basically were, they wanted something like the equivalent of a hundred room nights. So not a hundred wow. nights because that would be three months, but basically like for a week, five days, let's say we want 20 rooms each night and wow. you know, we need food and we need this, we need that. Mm. And I think I got the original pitch email cause I would field a lot of these. And I, I, I scheduled a call with the guy. We had a totally nice conversation and I was just sort of like, first of all, do you have any luck with this pitch in Japan or in Asia? Yeah. Because I know it may be fun for people watching The Bachelor to say, oh, uh, we're going to go on the honeymoon suite and we're going to go to some great resort in Thailand and they're going to give you fresh cut fruit and there's flower petals in the pools and all mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But the reality is what you remember is whether, oh, whether they had a fight or whether they hooked up. You don't remember the name of the hotel. No. Yeah. So even if you're going to put your location in front of the eyeballs of 10 million, 100 million people, they don't actually remember what your hotel is. It's not worth it. And whether um, or not they, they even can afford <laughs> to stay at this hotel, particularly if you are a five-star hotel. Absolutely. Right. So that was a big thing. It was who, who is our audience and is this influencer or TV show or writer or whatever, are they going to reach that audience? Mm. So ultimately we said no to the bachelor or bachelorette. Mm. It's totally fine for them to reach out. They, they say, Hey, we, you're a premier location in Japan and mm. we want to reach out to you. Totally fine. Mm. But the ask was not relevant to what we needed. Yeah. Um, I, I do think there's been a pushback with influencers because I think there's a lot of entitlement mm. where people think, oh, I've got X number of followers. Like you have to let me stay for free mm. and you have to give me like a per diem. I mean, That's, I think, you know, that takes balls we, to really ask for those kind of things. Look, Essentially, we, give me... we would love to travel and get paid to do it. Exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. And there was another one I got one time. It, the guy was really handsome and jacked and the girl was beautiful. And maybe she was a mm. contestant on some beauty show or something. And their deck, I probably still have it somewhere, but it was basically just two beautiful people. It's like, we'll do an Instagram story about it. We'll do a post about your location. We'll maybe make a video. All that's great. I mean, look, I would love to have their life. But again, mm. the focus of their posts is them. Yes, it's not the fact that we're at like a historic location or that we're at a place that has real cultural significance. It's, it's not just about how much reach you have. It's yeah. about if it's the right reach. So we found some luck with some smaller travel influencers, maybe like a little bit above a backpacker, but not like a beauty, fitness, foodie, Instagram person. It's just more of like the type of person who travels, but with intention right they want to mm. go and they don't want to just take the photo and leave they want to go and they want to learn a little bit about the place they want yes. to do the cultural experience they want to maybe get away from get off the beaten path 
And those types of people we found, you know, results with. I mean, it, it's tough to measure. It's tough yeah. to measure the, the value of influencers. I think yeah. it, it really depends. If you're, if you're selling like a fitness product, if, you, if you're selling like fitness leggings, like you got to get a beautiful influencer to wear them and do fitness workouts. Yeah. Man. And, and even if you have to pay for it, it's probably worth it. Yeah. Um, a lot of the no pay exchange, right? So like we say, okay, we'll give you a free night and you write a, write a blog post about it. Mm. That still happens, but a lot of it is becoming just like a pay to play, right? Like mm. I'll pay you and you'll do this. And actually, if you just say we'll pay you, then that kind of flips the table where instead of you asking them to write nice things, they need to then justify to you why you're giving them the money. So yeah. you kind of take the, take the control. It's interesting that uh, for years, you know, freelancers have always complained about clients asking them to work for free because, you know, we're paying you an exposure, but now the tables are kind of flipped where social media influencers are saying, look, we'll, we'll pay you back in terms of exposure. It's, it's sort of ironic how we're coming to this sort of juncture and <laughs> to, to that kind of point now. Yeah, there was a really, there was a case you may have heard of, I don't know, people listening can, can Google it, but. There was an influencer who went to a hotel in Ireland, I think, or, mm. and she, she emailed them in advance of her trip and basically was like, I want you to comp me <laughs> and here's what I'll give you. And the, the owner was very cheeky and wrote back and basically said, well, how am I going to pay my wait staff with your likes? Like, am I going to, how am I going to, you know, pay the, the bellhops and the, the chefs yeah. and and again, good for this guy. This kind of blew up, and then the woman made a video, and <laughs> she came out not looking very good, from what I no. recall. It's tough, right? Because, I mean, mm. so what we would usually do is we would offer rooms that weren't being filled anyway. Yeah. So if we had vacancy, we could potentially offer that as the barter. Oh, okay. Um, Right. So we were sort of giving away something that we weren't selling anyway. And I think there were a couple like cultural experiences where people could wear a yukata or do a tea ceremony and we would set those up. And I, that, would, that would obviously be for free. Yeah, I think you just need to be strategic and, and you need to have realistic expectations. You need to look at it as a component of a campaign, but not the only thing you do. Well, I guess that kind of relates to my to the other question we were discussing. Look, does PR and marketing have a bad PR image? So does PR have a PR problem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it can. I think it really depends on how you practice it. I mean, I think it's like, like, do lawyers have a bad reputation? Why yes. is that? <laughs> you know, but I mean, like, there's plenty of lawyers who exonerate people who are mm. wrongfully convicted of crimes. There are people mm. who help make sure that companies are protected from litigious people who sue them for no reason. Public relations as a practice People have different reactions when they hear that. I, as a big consumer of news, right? I mean, I was always reading the newspapers. I was listening to the radio. To me, PR is sort of the flip side of that, where a journalist wants to know, if they're, if they're writing a story, right, they want to know, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, how. Mm -hmm. So the public relations professional really needs to take whatever the news that the company has, and they need to package it in such a way so that, a journalist sees the story, sees the value of the story and wants to write about it. Yeah. Now you can do that in a bad way. You can be sneaky. You can lie by omission or commission, given incorrect information. You can all of these things. But again, I thankfully have never been in a position where a client has asked me to do something I thought was unethical. 
there is a certain amount of messaging that happens, right? Like you can take a bad situation and you can reframe it so that it looks like an opportunity. Basically, look, bad things are going to happen. There's reactionary PR, but there's also proactive PR. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people think about the reactionary PR where like, you know, a crisis happens and then you don't make a statement about it. You don't confirm anything. People are frustrated. You can't, they don't get any information and it ends up becoming a big problem. Mm -hmm. I think the reactionary PR, if you are open, if you're transparent, problems, you know, are resolved. Maybe it hurts you in the short term, but in the long term, your reputation is is restored. Uh, I was recently reading the obituary for for Harold Harold Burson, who founded Burson Marsteller, which is a big famous PR firm. Mm. There was a big issue with Tylenol, where cyanide laced capsules of Tylenol killed mm. a bunch of people in Chicago, mm. and he helped the head of the the company order a recall, which was totally expensive and it was a big deal, but it helped instill trust in the brand in the long term. And now mm. nobody thinks of Tylenol as suspect. To kind of get back to your point, I think. If people have a bad image of PR as a practice, they're probably thinking of the actions of some bad actors who don't approach it from how can we report the who, what, when, where, why, how? What's the newsworthiness of this story? They're thinking about people who are lying. They're hiding obvious truths. They won't admit to something that appears patently obvious. And it's then bordering on propaganda. Yeah. Right. I mean, what's the difference between propaganda and public relations? I would say that public relations is based in truth. You're not lying. You're open to questions. You, You approach things in good faith. And I have found that approach of trying to ground things in, well, okay, what actually happened? Right. Who, what, when, where, why, how? And even for clients where we're not performing public relations services, if we're just doing marketing, that attitude of being sort of like a a savvy media consumer means that I can say, well, actually, even if we're just doing quote unquote marketing, we probably shouldn't use that as like a tagline or a slogan or something because Mm. it could be problematic or we could be inviting attention that we don't want. Public relations, people may be cynical about it. I I think it's still very valuable. When United had that problem where there was the passenger that got dragged off the plane, people were mad because it exposed a lot of the practices where airline companies can basically over oversell a flight, overbook it, yes. and then force somebody to get off. And then if they don't comply, they can drag them off. You know, you see practices like that. Now, as a consumer, you see that and you're horrified. But if you see a company come out and they they basically say, look, this happened. Here's how this happened. This was the process that led to this happening. Mm. We are making these changes so that this doesn't happen again. We're going to make it right with the person and we are going to be more transparent and blah, blah, blah. That's what you really want to hear, right? That's one side of PR. The term spin doctors will come into the discussion. You've got things like, for example, um, actors, uh, public figures during the Me Too movement. Of course, not every one of those had a career suddenly back on track, you know, after just apologizing and owning up to, to what they've done. But a lot of them seem to go through the same kind of procedures where you almost could see the paint by numbers sort of thing. You know what I mean? Like you could right. say, oh, they're going to do this. Next, they're going to yeah. say this. And then next, they're going to do that. And then that's Politicians it. Politicians do it too. 
Yeah, and it, it you have the does wife generate... with you. You apologize. Yeah, you cry exactly. You know, and then that generates quite a bit of cynicism, in my opinion. The younger generation who are very media savvy, especially social media savvy, they can see like you know, this is what the, you're trying to manipulate public opinion. Right. Uh, it just seems insincere. I would just say that those types of situations in the entire PR industry, I think, are not the majority, right? I mean, just imagine every time a company announces a new product, right? Like Apple, their conferences where they unveil the new products, right? Like that's PR, mm. right? Do people have negative impressions of those or are they carefully orchestrated events that blend advance access to certain journalists so that they can test the products and mm. write reviews before they launch? Very highly anticipated meetings again it's a, they, they host an event it's not just a press conference it's like a big event that's pr now again you can get kind of into blurry areas where do you revoke access to a product mm. to an advanced review of a product to somebody who maybe writes a bad review it's messy i mean journalism is messy some people don't even think of journalism as like a honorable thing that's trustworthy i could keep commenting on PR, but I'd be mostly commenting from just as like a regular sort of civilian and not as somebody who's done it. But my experience with PR, and I think the experience of most people who would do quote unquote PR is that most of the time they're helping companies announce things that the company thinks is, is a really big deal, but in reality is not a big deal. <laughs> so, you know, somebody right. joins your board, you're probably going to put out a press release. Yeah. Maybe it'll get written about in a publication that exclusively covers that industry. The reality is that the New York Times is probably not going to write about the fact you switched out your CEO or yeah. that something happened. Yeah. Um, if you are a company that cures cancer mm. or you cure a certain type of cancer, that is something where how you communicate that is really important. Mm. And that's an opportunity where you may be able to get a wide variety of press coverage. Not all PR is just handling crises. It's promoting the product or service or letting people mm -hmm. know that, hey, actually, this, this nonprofit helped 50,000 people get opioid treatment yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. But as you made the point, it's not bad or good. It's not intrinsically bad or intrinsic, intrinsically good. It's just like how you sell the message. And, you know, don't, don't tell lies. Essentially, spin doctors exist as a phrase for a reason, and there's a lot of history in that. But uh, I would say instead of spin doctors, it's more like position doctors. And I sort of look at it as like when you meet with your lawyer, your lawyer sort of wants to know what the real story is, and then they can help make a case for you, right? Mm -hmm. I need to know exactly what happened, and then I can sort of think about how we're going to approach this. It really helps when you know the full story. So that mm. you can then use your knowledge of the media zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist to be able to say, OK, this is like the full thing, but we're not going to emphasize that feature. We're going to talk more about this. We're going to talk more about the fact that it mm -hmm. has a long battery life. Okay. That doesn't mean we're going to lie if somebody asks us about how strong the Wi-Fi signal is. But again, is that spin or is that just you're taking a message and you're making it relevant for a particular audience? Now, again, yeah. you could be cynical and say everything is propaganda and everything is BS. Mm. But, you know, the difficulty of two things being true at the same time. Right. Yeah. You may be getting lied to directly or people may just be not telling you the whole story. Yeah. And those aren't always the same thing.
regardless of what your opinions are on the subject matter, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Many thanks to Alex for providing a very measured, articulate and nuanced discussion about an industry which, as I've mentioned before, can have bad PR. And if you are or were a Jet, I hope the first part in our discussion about the Jet experience gave you a better appreciation about the positive professional development that the program can provide. And that's all we have for this episode. The AfterJet podcast will take a small break in August. Thank you very much for listening, and see you next time. Bye-bye. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, email me at webmaster at jetaainternational.org. This podcast is generously supported by Claire, the Council of Local Authorities for International Relations. However, it is otherwise an independent work by me, Eden Law. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the private opinions of individuals and do not represent any organization that they work for. The music adapted for this episode is Let's Sell Some Cars by Steve Combs and is licensed under an attribution license and is available on freemusicarchive.org. Music